Let's pray together. Father, again, we are thankful that you are the God who is at work among your people. That when you left the earth, Lord Jesus, and ascended back to heaven, where you assumed the highest position of honor and glory, you didn't just give up and sit back and let things happen. We thank you that you are active and you are involved and you are doing your bidding among your people. And we pray that you would do your work even among us this day by your spirit. As we look into your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I think many of us are familiar with Jesus' last words to his disciples. He was very clear on giving them a mission which they are to carry out. The mission was make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I commanded you. That's pretty clear. I think everyone is familiar with that, called the Great Commission. But it's interesting to compare that with and add to that another commission, another task given to the same apostles found in the first chapter of, of Acts, if you'll find your way there, we find in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, a very strange, if in, a, in a sense, an odd command. And it, it goes like this. Gathering his apostles together, verse 4, Acts 1, gathering them together, Jesus commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait. Wait. Wait for what the Father had promised, which, Jesus said, you heard from me, you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, when did they receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit? When did the, when did the Spirit of God come in great power and begin to start the church together? It would happen on the day of Pentecost. If you compare that with Jesus being raised from the dead over here, and then you count 40 days, he's talking and spending time with his disciples, giving many indisputable proofs of his being alive. It's 40-day period, period, period of time. And then you add to that 40 days, another 10 days, here's Pentecost. Here's where the Holy Spirit comes. So there's a 10-day window of waiting is given to these apostles. And before the milestone of them launching out on this mission that he gives to them, they have to sit and wait for 10 days. Waiting. Waiting. What do you think about waiting? Are you like me? When it comes to waiting, I hate to wait. Right? Whether it's traffic, bumper to bumper, parking lot, LIE or Belt Parkway or wherever it is, waiting at the DMV. How's that sound? Nice way to spend the day, right? Doctor's office, you go to have an appointment at 10 o'clock. He looks at you, come in the door at 11.15. Are you in a good mood at that point? Waiting, waiting, waiting. Some of us find ourselves even having a hard time waiting for a download. Might take a minute, but we're like, come on, man, what's wrong with this thing? We don't like to wait, do we? We find in terms of our productive sense of our productive sensibilities that we're wasting time if we're not able to do something and be productive, right? So I don't know about you, but I think many of us would say that our heart's desires really are to for instant gratification. We would find waiting to be the long, one of the things on the lowest part of the list of what we like to do, you know? How much do you enjoy waiting for things? And yet here is Jesus, how in the world, why in the world would he require his apostles? The ones that he has trained, the one he is now ready to send them out on mission, why would one of the first assignments be, wait, what I've promised you? Now, I have to give a parenthetical thought here. As I've said, the book of Acts, you have to be careful in reading it because we understand this command for them to wait is unique to them. They're waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit, which is a unique, redemptive history occurrence. It's never happened, uh, had never happened before. It never is repeated like that again. It was a unique period of redemptive history. But 
What I want to focus on this morning is that what did God accomplish? What is Jesus doing during this 10-day period of waiting? Was it really a waste of time? Or was Jesus working and using the 10-day period of waiting as a beneficial time of training his people? And I'm going to I'm going to try to show you two evidences, two bits of evidence to show you that the time of waiting was actually a time of training and beneficial results occurred. If you've got your Bible, let's look at Acts chapter 1. We'll begin reading in verse 12. Then they, that is the apostles, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And at this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons, was there together. And Peter said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which is which is which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his portion in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open into the middle, and all of his bowels gushed out, and it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language that field was called Hakel Dama, which is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate and let no man dwell in it. And his office left, let another man take. It is therefore necessary that of the men who have accompanied us, all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these should become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they put forward two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who knows the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and the apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they withdrew and they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Two things took place, I believe, during this time of waiting. Number one, I believe that God's disciples, the apostles, they came to grips with their spiritual weakness through prayer. Spiritual weakness. You see, Jesus had prepared them for this transition. The transition of him ministering with them and among them and being with them physically and the transition from him now leaving them and them now ministering with him being in heaven. A little over a month earlier, Jesus had shared this Passover meal with these apostles, and he had given them much instruction during that time. And he said to them in chapter 14 of John's gospel, he told them what he was going to do for them. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, another person called alongside of you that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth. Jesus said, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And if you look at verses 4 and 5, as I started off my sermon this morning of chapter 1 in Acts, he's reminding them, that's what you're going to be given, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, what we know from this promise and what he was trying to impress upon his disciples is this concept, and that is that without God's help, Jesus' disciples are bound to fail. And the illustration that Jesus used to teach this valuable lesson about how much we need his help, we need him to be working among us, was he used the illustration of a grapevine and the different branches that obviously have been pruned and made such a way that it produces grapes. And so it's 
rather obvious that when you look at a grapevine, there is the branches that go off from the main stem that goes down to the ground, and you would expect to find at the end of a branch, you're going to find grapes there, but you'll never find grapes at the end of a branch that's attached to the main stem of the vine, of a grapevine, if that branch has been detached from the stem that goes down to the ground. You're not going to find any grapes on the end of that one, right? Because the branch receives life-sustaining nutrients and moisture to feed the growth and the production of those grapes. It's pretty straightforward. And this is why Jesus insisted that his disciples need to abide with him. They need to remain with him and in him and to know him and commune with him. That's why Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing of spiritual significance, nothing of spiritual impact in seeing lives changed. So the early apostles and the disciples at that time, this is first century, this is about the year 30 AD, we are estimating. The early disciples and apostles needed then and we need now the power of Jesus' Spirit working in us. If we are to be people who are on mission, we are to be making disciples of all the peoples of the world, people next door to us, the people who live among us, the people that we work with, the people who live far away from us, the people in Kittery, Maine, the people in uh, Bangladesh, wherever it is. That task and that mission will never be achieved through human effort and ingenuity alone. We need the Holy Spirit and His power. And so having His disciples wait was Jesus' way of impressing upon them this valuable lesson is that what? They are spiritually weak apart from His power and His help, His resources. Jesus' disciples knew two things when he descended into heaven. Two things they were left with. They knew for sure. They knew that he had given them a promise, that he was going to give them this gift of the Spirit. And secondly, they knew that they were spiritually weak and they needed help. Now, they did not know exactly when that was going to take place. They didn't know how much time it was going to take for this waiting. So what do they do during that time? They unite together. Look in your text there, verse 14. They unite together. These with, all, with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. They joined together, unified in prayer. Now, if you look at that list of men, that's provided to you, if you do some little research, you will find that group of men is quite a diverse group of men. There are some of them who are related to each other. Brothers, cousins, they have all these common relatives they share together. There are some people that have no relationship with each other. They have nothing to do, blood relatives among that group. There are some who were, uh, had a background of a background that was so compromised uh, to commitment to Jewish faith. They were the opposite of that. Matthew, for example, was a former tax collector. Someone was hated by the Jews. Then there's someone like uh, Simon the Zealot. He's ready to take up arms and fight against the Rome, Roman uh, Empire. So there are people who are like all over the place. They're different backgrounds, different viewpoints. And yet these people who are quite diverse when you think about it, they're joining together in prayer. And you add to that even more diversity among them. You've got a group of women who have included now. So they've got a number of these uh, women who have been a part of following Jesus and listening to his teaching and helping support him in different ways, including Jesus' mother and his brothers. Isn't that cool? His brother's now realizing, yeah, he is alive. This is the, indeed the Lord. And so they're now embracing this. And so I don't know anywhere else in the Gospels, I don't know anywhere you've read the Gospels that Jesus' disciples were with one mind continually devoting themselves to prayer. This is something unique here. Because when you think about it, what's drawing them together? It's the fact that Jesus said, I'm promising you the Spirit's going to come. I'm going to give you the Spirit. 
And here's a good verse to meditate on, Luke 11, as to why they would continue to pray and pray and pray. You can pray with confidence over a period of time if you know for sure that Jesus has promised that for which you're praying. Luke 11, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So they were doing what? They were asking him, send that spirit, Lord. We need help. We are weak. We're not going to be able to do this on our own. I find it fascinating how mutual prayer unifies diverse people. People who don't share a lot in common in many of the normal things that you view as being, well, we have things in common, so therefore we can hang out, sort of enjoy each other. We have a lot in common, so therefore we, we are friends and pretty close relationally. No, this is going past that, beyond that. This is people who are saying the unity in the church does not consist of people who act the same, people who look the same on the outside. Unity in the church, genuine unity, is seen in people who share together a, a, a submission to Christ together, a shared identity in Christ together, and a shared spiritual sense of neediness, a weakness that they share together. And so what do they do? They join together in prayer. And every believer shares in common what? A need for a Savior, a need for power to overcome the flesh, a need for divine enabling to courageously witness for Christ, no matter what the cost, and to see the power of God change somebody else's heart in response to the gospel proclamation, because we can't change people's hearts. Only Holy Spirit can. I've been thinking back to a time in which our church family went through times of waiting, and I recall not too many years ago, we were looking for a minister of youth and music, and we looked not just for several weeks, not just several months, we looked for a one year, and then we looked for a second year, kept looking, kept looking, kept waiting, kept praying. I can remember some of these prayer meetings in which we would call the church to pray, and we would gather together, a small band of us, and we would say, Lord, we desperately, we need help here. We're not finding the one we're looking for, and yet we desperately need his help. It was a unifying time among those of us who realized we needed help, and God heard those prayers. Send us Tim Schneider. Schneider, what a blessing he was to have him as long as we did. So here's my question. Have your spiritual needs moved you toward other believers and united with those other believers in prayer? When you sense your spiritual weakness as a person who says, I'm still <laughs> very much aware that I don't accomplish the things I know I should and I'm falling far short in many areas, does that ever motivate you to join with other brothers and sisters in prayer and to seek together God's enabling power at work in your life and asking Him for grace, asking Him for wisdom, for compassion for the lost? People who are not necessarily the same age group, the same, same necessarily background you have, they're not like you at all, maybe, but you share together this common sense of need before God. I wonder how many of us can say, does your family ever join together in prayer and unify around the fact that, you know, we as parents and we as children, we all need Christ? And that's what joins us together in prayer? You ever claim the promises of God and keep on asking and keep on seeking and keep on knocking? Because let's be honest, waiting is a tough time to wait and pray. I wonder if God has some of us in a period of waiting. That's sort of where the Plasinskis are. Waiting and yet they continue to do what they can do. They're asking, they're soliciting, they're trying to build their team as best they can. But maybe you have another situation in which you're sort of, God has providentially held you in check. He's, you're looking to God to provide something to you. You're waiting for him. You're looking for God to lead you somehow. You're still not sure what's next in the path ahead. You're waiting. It's not clear. Maybe there's a dilemma that you're looking for God to solve for you. 
Are you wondering where God is while you're left waiting for him? Let me encourage you, don't despair during the time of waiting. Do you realize that is not a waste of time to wait for God in prayer? It's where God is leading you sometimes. It's where God wants us to be, waiting in prayer. He uses that time of waiting to do what? To turn our hearts to him. To help us realize, I need you, Lord. This is not, my plans are not working out. I need you to do what you only can do. In your notes, I have included a very helpful quote from John Blanchard, the evangelist. And he offers this helpful insight. And perhaps you might want to fill out this blank because it's a good quote. Regarding the God's purposes in causing his people to wait. He says, waiting for an answer to prayer is often part of the answer. In other words, as we're praying, the fact that God does not give us immediate instantaneous responses is really part of his strategy to give what? To help us learn to pray, learn to wait, learn to count on God, learn to get with other people and Christians and pray together. Waiting upon the Lord is not a waste of time. It's a time to learn. And what do you learn when you're waiting on the Lord? You're not in control. I'll say it a little louder. You're not in control. We like to be in control, don't we? Just like when years ago you put the money into the, I say years ago uh, because that's the way I remember it being uh, when I was young, is you put the money into the machine and you pull the handle out, right? And here comes the candy bar. Or you pull it, put the money in the machine, and I can remember you can get soda pop bottles. How many of you remember that? Soda pop bottles out of the machine. Now we got these fancy, you know, they got these little robotic arms. They grab the bottle and drop it down or whatever. That's the way we sometimes think of what's the way God works. I just, I just do this, this, and this, and then God will just instantly give me what I want. No, God doesn't work that way. He has mysterious but all-wise purposes to cause us to wait. While we're waiting on the Lord, it's a time to learn we're not in control of everything, and we're not self-sufficient. And lastly, we're not spiritually strong. We need His help. And so we pray. And we need God's help and the mutual prayers of God's people. May I just put a little additional thought here as we finish point number one? You know, I realize that our 9.30 hour, 45 minutes of prayer and praise doesn't fit everybody. I realize we don't have everything for small children in a nursery, whatever. I realize that those are some weaknesses. But there are many of you who could join us for that time of prayer. And I'm longing to see God raise up Many of us who will begin to seek God together in prayer, uniting together in prayer, praising Him, and yes, also seeking Him to do His work among us. We need His help. We need His help as a church. It's a time to pray, seek His face, get serious about how the fact that we need His power to work among us. We can't do this on our own. So I urge you to come as an expression of your faith. Bring your kid and let him make noise. I don't care. Again, it's not, not that. It's the fact that we want you to come and pray. Point number two. What was the second thing that God was trying to accomplish among his apostles that they needed to see as a time of learning? Secondly, he, they had to come to grips with spiritual heartache. Spiritual heartache. You say, where did you get that? Did you notice in verse 13... How many names were listed there? Take a minute and look in your Bible. Count. How many names are there? When you got the answer, tell me. Eleven. I thought there were twelve apostles. There's only eleven there. There's only eleven men along with all these other people gathered together. Eleven of the original apostles. Here they are, this band of brothers, and one of their number is not with them. And sadly, and I mean sadly and tragically, not only is he not with them, but he was buried in a new grave not far from there. He was, along with the eleven, 
Judas was one who sat under those teaching for three years, listening to Jesus' amazing insights. It was Judas who also, along with the eleven, witnessed all of these amazing works of power that Jesus performed, including calming that storm in that boat. He's out there, and he, just a mere saying of the words, the waves are calm, the wind is calm. He was there. Judas, despite all these amazing privileges, he betrayed Jesus. He turned him over to the authorities, knowing full well what those authorities were going to do to him. Setting in motion Jesus' death. Now, you say, okay, you've got to back up and realize, did, where were all the other disciples when Jesus was being tried and crucified? Well, it's true they did stumble. No question about it. If you look at Matthew 14, it says that all of them abandoned Jesus when he's arrested because it says the sheep scatter, right? When the shepherd is, uh, is stricken down, the sheep are going to scatter. That's true. But the unique thing about Judas was there was only one of them who sold Jesus and betrayed him into the hands of those who wanted to put him to death. It's as if Judas was saying, I want to see you die, Jesus. And I'm going to set it in motion to make it happen. And if you look at verse 17 of this text in Acts 1, what seems to be made it so traumatic for these disciples is that the one who took these steps to betray him for money was the one who was counted among us. He was one of us. He was the one who had, what, received his portion in this ministry. He was part of this gang that we were followers of Jesus. Now, I say this with a great sobered spirit, but Judas appeared to be what you would call a genuine Christian. I mean, he talked like a Christian, probably, he made a profession saying, oh yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. And for a while he did look like he was one, but his profession was a false one. He confessed, as it says in Matthew 7, he confessed, Lord, Lord, Jesus was his Lord, but he never did enter the kingdom of heaven. His heart sadly enough, was full of greed. You say, how do you know that? Well, I think once all this came to light, once Judas revealed his true self in this act, diabolical act of disloyalty, once that came to light, I think the apostles began to realize, oh, that's why, oh, that's why this happened. And they put the pieces together Turn with me just for a second to John 12. Just keep your finger there in Acts 1. Just a couple pages back to John 12, page 1279. Here in this text, I can't take a long time to develop all this, but <clears throat> at the beginning of the chapter there, John 12, verse 1, Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany <clears throat> where Lazarus was, whom Jesus raised from the dead. He made supper there. Martha was serving. Lazarus, one of those, reclined at the table with him. So these are his very dear, dear friends. He's in their home. And Mary there took a, a, a very costly pound of genuine spikenard ointment. An heirloom, perhaps. Something extremely valuable. We'll find out how much it is in just a second here. And she anointed. She opens the thing up, anoints the feet of Jesus while he's reclining at the meal. She wipes his feet with her hair. And the house is filled with this fragrance of this amazing anointment. Ointment, sorry. And Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him. Isn't that an interesting quote, point that John adds here? Here's the guy who's getting ready to sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. What does he say when this woman does it? Showing her devotion to him, saying, I'm willing to give my most costly item I have. I'm going to give it to you because I love you so much. 
And Judah says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 days' wages? That's how much it's worth. And give that money to the poor. Now look what John adds. This is clearly his understanding years later. He writes this probably back 30, 40 years, even 50 years after the event. John writes, now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a what? A thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Do you see what's happening there? John, in looking back on this particular event, realized that what Judas was saying looked good on the outside. Oh, he looks like a compassionate follower of Jesus, questioning why that was, you know, poured out on his feet when he could have helped so many needy people in the world. He doesn't care about those needy people, really. He cares about what? Himself. He missed out on having that money be put into the pot so that he could steal even more of it. Judas was an embezzler. His first love was not Christ. His first love was riches. And he had convinced the people around him that he was concerned for Christ, that he was concerned for the poor, that he was concerned about all the things you're supposed to be concerned for, as if he had a heart that was heart of gold. Sadly, he longed for gold. And that really was his heart's devotion. So Judas himself, we read in the scriptures, was pretending to care. And when his true colors came out, it was Judas, we read in the scriptures, in Matthew 26, it is Judas himself who sought out the chief priests and asked them, what are you willing to give me to deliver up Jesus into your hands so you can do with him as you please? What are you going to give me? What are you going to give me? He's looking for money. His love of money was so strong that he fell into the snare of what 1 Timothy 6 warns against, the harmful desires of someone who's filled with greed. Judas's life plunged into ruin and plunged into destruction by way of guilt and shame and ultimately suicide when he realized he couldn't live with what he had done. Here is Judas going through the outward motions. He was making a profession that had no heart transformation. And again, I just want to ask the question, I wonder if there's anyone here this morning who would say, I may not be a Judas, but if people really knew me, if they really knew the real me, I don't know if I could really let them know that part of myself because I'm a person who's one way on Sunday but other the rest of the days of the week I really have no interest in Christ I really don't have any evidence of an affection for Jesus that means I love him and I'm yielding to him and I love to serve him and I have a conviction of sin and oftentimes I confess my sins and I I long for Christ to to bear my sins no that's none of that's going on it's just I have this tradition where I go through looking like I'm an upstanding person who has some sort of religious inclinations. May I just say to you, my friend, God knows your heart. We don't. Ultimately, we don't know anybody's real heart. But God does. If you're that kind of person, I would urge you, it's still not too late to say, Lord Jesus, I don't want to be a phony. I don't want to be a hypocrite. I want to be a real person who understands the greatness of my need for you to save me from myself. Some of you may struggle with secret sins. For, for, for Judas, it was greed and stealing, embezzling, which he hid quite carefully, apparently. Others of us may be, who knows what kind of sin it is that you're ashamed to talk about and deal with. So here's a call of the gospel that says, come to Christ. Don't just play games. Indeed, if you look at what this text is warning us, it's saying it's not enough to just say you're a Christian. Being a Christian involves true repentance, a turning away from sin, having a hatred of sin, and turning to Christ in simple 
childlike faith and surrender and trust and reliance on Christ. May I say that during this time of waiting, these 11 disciples, these 11 apostles, had to come to grips with this deep and I would say profound spiritual heartache. I would say, I dare say, they did not see this coming. They had no clue that he would do such a dastardly deed. And it is because they had no clue, and you say, well, where do you get that? Turn back to Matthew 26, and there's clear evidence here that Jesus, during the final meal with his disciples at the Passover, is sitting there. He doesn't call Judas out by name. He doesn't say, okay, Judas, you're the guy that's going to mess this up. You're the one that's going to sell out here big time. No, he doesn't say that. But he does say that one of you will betray me. And what is the response of all 12 of them, including the phony baloney of Judas Iscariot? It says they were all greatly distressed. And one by one, they began to ask Jesus, Teacher, am I? I'm not the one, am I? They had no idea who it was going to be. And they began to wonder, is that going to be me? Do you see what I'm saying? How could one of their number betray the sinless Son of God for a handful of coins? They just can't imagine one of their number doing that. All of us, sadly, are going to face spiritual heartache if you're serious about following Jesus. All of us are going to face at time, sometime in your life, you're going to encounter something that just does not seem to add up. And you're going to say, wow, I didn't see that coming. I have a hard time understanding how that could take place. Uh, there are some of us who can think of events that are unthinkable that happen among professing believers. I've had to go back in my memory and I've had all these experiences come back to my mind when I was in a church in Virginia. And at the time when I got there, there was a gentleman who was the chairman of the deacons, very friendly gentleman. He was retired, military retired fella. He was driving a late model Cadillac, which I was impressed with. And so I'm thinking, well, he was very enthusiastic about things at church and offering to do things. And he was very kind to me. He took me under his wing and uh, he was obviously well-to-do, it seemed to me, because he would invite me occasionally to accompany him. He had a membership at a restaurant, an exclusive eating club, I guess you'd say, at the top story of the Sovereign Bank building in Norfolk, Virginia. Folks, I don't hang out in those places normally. Do you? I mean, you pay money to be a part of some restaurant. At the top level, the view was amazing. Service was unbelievable. Every time you pick up anything, they're coming there and straightening up things and sweeping away the crumbs. And it's unbelievable. So I was very thankful. I was very uh, encouraged by his help and support. Only then to realize. One other day, somebody comes into my study and they said, have you read the papers? I said, no. They said, what's up? Well, the chairman of the deacon's name is in the paper because he owes money to so-and-so, another member of your church. And he hasn't paid it and they're taking him to court. So I call up the chairman of the deacons. And I said, hey, what's up with this? No answer. He hung up the phone. I kept pursuing him. I kept trying to meet with him. Come to find out he took off. He left his home. He was gone. Went into the sunset. Never saw the guy again. Come to find out he was living a phony life. He didn't have all those, he didn't have all those assets. He was he would owed money to everybody and everyone, and he's living this lifestyle. What's the point? At some point, I had to process in my mind, how could this take place? How could this guy be this way all these different weeks and months prior to this? And then the real person is exposed as a phony baloney, a fraud. Now, again, I don't know what it may be for you. I don't know what kind of situation you may have to face and what kind of people, what they do or don't do and what kind of disillusionment you may face in those situations where it doesn't add up. But all of us are going to be confronted by the evil actions 
that are carried out by a person who appears to have been loyal to Jesus. My friend, if we're going to be on mission for Jesus, you better be ready to deal with spiritual disappointment and heartache because it's going to come. One among us may do things among us and leave us or depart from us. That should not mean that you give up in serving Christ. And these apostles, I'm convinced, had 10 days in which they faced head-on the reality that there were just 10, 11 of them, sorry, 11 of them for 10 days realizing that one of us really did depart from us in a terrible way, tragically. And so what happens here? Look what, look what Peter does. Peter has meditated on this. He's thought deeply about this. He is obviously concerned about it. And he has come up with a biblical interpretation to try to make sense of all this craziness, tragedy. So Peter affirms what? Verse 16. He affirms that the fact that this diabolical act of disloyalty on Judas's part was part of God's sovereign plan. You say, man, you've just gotten into deep water on that one. You're way over your head talking about that. Hey, Peter has studied the scriptures. He goes back and reads and he notices and says, listen, this was part of God's sovereign plan. And when you read the Gospels, you'll see clues of that throughout the writings of the Gospel writers saying, this is Judas who, by the way, was going to be the traitor. It is Jesus who said he selected Judas Iscariot, knowing full well what he was going to do. Matter of fact, in, John, in Matthew 26, Jesus said at the Passover meal, he taught his followers that the scriptures predicted that the loyal, devoted friend is going to betray the Son of God, Son of David. It's going to happen. It's part of the plan. This event, although it was despicable, it was a despicable sin that he committed, was part of God's sovereign plan. If you want to get further insight into working through this complex issue, I have read through and found very helpful John Piper's small little paperback book called Spectacular Sins and Their Global Purpose in the Glory of Christ. He wrestles with some big ones about how can you explain this horrendous evils that are going on in the world? How does that fit in with God's global purposes and plans? And he helps bring some helpful spiritual insights to that. Because let's be honest, we've got to deal with that. Because there's all kinds of disappointments, tragedies, heartaches, and things that happen as you're a follower of Christ. I'm sure some of you could tell some sad and sorry stories. I know some of them. Let me add another point here, though. What else did Peter say? Peter affirmed, yes, it's part of the sovereign plan of God. But secondly, Peter made clear that Judas was responsible for his sinful act. Very important. You say, where'd you get that? Look at verse 18. Verse 18. This man acquired a field with the price of his what? Wickedness. Wickedness. Treachery, some translations say. Indeed, when you look at the writings and the words of Scripture, Luke 6 says that Jesus in selecting Judas Iscariot, the one who became a traitor. It is Judas who was the one who was the betrayer. And how did he betray Jesus? With a kiss on the cheek. What is that? By making this the way in which he identified Jesus, it is Judas who took an expression of respect, of affection, of a, of a, of a love among someone you deeply care about, he took that gesture and he used it for the purpose of saying, I'm betraying you to the ones who's going to kill you because I really hate you and I can't stand the fact that you have not become the Messiah I wanted you to be. It was a despicable thing that he did and he's responsible for it. And you could add to that, of course, he's a thief. Let me just back up and say, remind you, my friends, that people do wicked things things. And God 
will hold every one of them accountable. Romans 12. You want to underline that verse in your Bible. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. There is divine retribution. If they haven't come to Christ, if they haven't repented of their sin, if they haven't turned from their sin and trusted Christ, God will deal with them. He will hold them accountable. But ultimately, we know that God is sovereign even over diabolical actions. You say, well, if you read the scriptures, it clearly says that, isn't it true that, that Satan influenced Judas to do the things that Judas did to carry out this horrific act of disloyalty? Is that true? And the Bible says absolutely yes. Read John 6 or Luke 22. It says Satan entered into Judas. But guess what? Judas was culpable for his wickedness. As a matter of fact, if you compare Ephesians chapter 2, I don't have time to explain this and explore it fully, but it was in the Piper book. If you are a person dead in your sins and you are following out what? The wishes and desires of the evil one, the spirit of the air. That if we are dead in our sins, we are sort of following and we're influenced by Satan all the time. And so he was an unregenerate person who was doing the bidding of Satan his whole life. Even though it looked like it was otherwise. Here's the point. Peter reflected on all these Old Testament scriptures. He concludes that the actions of this one false apostle did not bring about the what? The wrecking of God's gospel-powered church that he had promised to build. And so Peter says, we're not going to get off track of this. This is not the end of the line. This is not where we say, okay, I'm disillusioned and I'm just going to give up and I'm going to say, oh, forget this gospel ministry. No, he doesn't say that. What does he say? We're going to be involved in getting another apostle in here to replace him and we're going to move forward. Whenever the Spirit comes, we're ready. And so they gather together, carefully identify various men who would meet the qualifications of this apostle, primarily someone who's been a part of witnessing and looking at Jesus's ministry, earthly ministry, and the fact that they meet the qualifications of seeing him having risen from the dead. And they agree on two men, Barsabbas and Matthias. And they prayed. And what is one of the points of Luke's book? What is he trying to impress upon us that he said in the introduction? That Jesus continues to move and act among his people. It's Jesus who's now going to lead them as to who should be the next leader to replace him. And so what do they do? They prayed. They say, Lord, show us the one it should be. And then they did what? They drew lots. They drew lots. You say, what does that mean? Well, they probably took the name of both those individuals and they wrote the name on one little piece of wood and the name of another one on another little piece of wood or stone or something like that. And they put them in their garment or something or they put it in a bag of some kind and, they drew, and then they drew out one of those. And Matthias was the one who was selected. You say, well, that seems like a rather strange way to pick somebody. Well, at that time, again, in where they were in biblical history, drawing lots was a common way to determine the will of God prior to the giving of the Holy Spirit. And I've given you, I think, in your notes or what you can write it down, Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. What they're saying is, Lord, you lead us, you guide us here. We're trusting you to work through this process. Now hear me in the last few comments here. Peter realized Satan's attempt to destroy Jesus' church, Jesus' new community, which, by the way, 120 people is significant in the count here because it took 120 people to start a new Jewish community, according to Jewish law. He's saying, here's Jesus' new community that's getting launched, and Satan is attempting to try to just derail the whole thing. And Peter says, no, it's not going to happen. We're going to move forward in faith. And Jesus said he's going to build his church. He's going to do it. And so the early apostles worked through their spiritual heartache and didn't give up. They didn't despair. They didn't walk away disillusioned disengaged from gospel ministry, which some of us might be tempted to do. You hear about somebody, a TV evangelist, somebody you knew at one time who really disappointed you. You say, ah, I can't stand these churches. 
You can't be a part of a church because they always have these people who do X, Y, Z. No, you don't reach that conclusion. You just go back and say, what is the gospel? The gospel says we have the potential of any kind of sin coming from any of us. Potentially, don't we? We all need the gospel. But we have a glorious Savior, a wonderful gospel that we need to make known to others and a gospel we need to apply to our own lives. And therefore, we need to rely on God's word, be united in prayer, and find the time of waiting to be a time in which you draw together with others to seek the Lord that we might serve him in his power. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we can't help but think of our own situation here in our own church. How desperately we need to see your power. How desperately we need to see us as a church family be united together to work through our own spiritual disillusionment maybe and discouragement from things that have happened in the not so recent past or maybe a long time ago. And yet, Lord, we thank you that you are the God who can teach us valuable lessons during this time. Many of us, Lord, are waiting on you. You've led us into a time of waiting so that we might be taught. And the Plasinskis are waiting upon you, Lord. Many of us are waiting to see you convert people to give us courage and boldness to share the gospel. Many of us, Lord, need to see a great empowering of us. And so, Lord, draw us to our knees. Help us to reach out to other people and to pray. Pray for each other. To be honest and acknowledge we struggle with different things. We need to see you work and give us power and to empower us and to do your bidding, to be on mission, to be taking the gospel and discipling people, being used of you. Help us, Lord, not to sit on the sidelines disillusioned and discouraged. Help us to engage with you, the almighty God, through Jesus Christ, in becoming people of prayer. And Lord, I pray for those who might be among us today who have been soberly warned about making false professions and who have perhaps fooled a lot of people over the years. I pray that you would, Father, by your Spirit, convict them, help them to be true, to admit who they really are, to seek you, and to find Christ, to give them a true identity of being a follower of Christ and not someone who is living a double life a true hypocrite in whom there is no hope. We pray these things through Jesus Christ, our hope and our glorious and coming King. We pray in his name. Amen.